Good morning. Hello, everybody, and you're welcome to this morning's Signpost webinar. And uh, my name is Mark Gibson, and I'm the manager of the Chagas Connected program. As we come to the end of another week of lockdown, we hope that you're keeping safe and well wherever you are today. Uh, the Signpost webinar series is brought to you by Chagas in collaboration with Dairy Sustainability Ireland, the National Rural Network, and Food Drink Ireland Skillnet. Today, we're going to be talking about how farmers can reduce their nitrogen usage by up to 50% with little or no impact on animal performance. While this may sound too good to be true, Chagas research has shown that multi-species grassland swards uh, can offer the potential to significantly reduce nutrient losses from agriculture. And I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. John Finn, who is a researcher in biodiversity and agroecology at Chagas Johnstown Castle. Good morning, John. How are you today? Uh, good morning. Very well, Mark. Thank you. Good, good. And we're also joined by Pat Murphy, who's head of the Chagask Environment Knowledge Transfer Programme. Good morning to you, Pat. Good morning. So you're both coming to us from Wexford this morning. I hope the weather is fine down there today. Glorious. Glorious. It's good. always the sunny southeast here. Oh, <laughs> don't, don't rub it in, John. Thanks. <laughs> So, John, could you tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing in Johnstown Castle? I know you've quite a broad brief there, but uh, particularly in the, the whole area of uh, agroecology. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Yeah, yeah I've been uh, with Chagask at Johnstown Castle for about 20 years now, and I was brought in as a, as a researcher in biodiversity and agroecology. And uh, really, I've been working at that interface between wildlife, biodiversity and agriculture for the last 20 years, working on you know, options for farmers to adopt in agro-environment schemes and demonstrating or investigating their effectiveness. Uh, most recently, looking at results-based payments for biodiversity and ecosystem services, um, as, as well as work with life projects and nature conservation and high nature value farmland. I guess the other half of my research career then has been looking at uh, multi-species mixtures and plant diversity in intensively managed systems and how they can help improve uh, nutrient use efficiency and resource use efficiency in intensively managed systems. So the work that you're doing, John, is really coming to the fore now, particularly in the context of these new ambitious targets set down by the, the European uh, Green Deal and farm to fork strategies, uh, up to 50% reduction in uh, nutrient losses uh, targeted, and I think 20% reduction in fertilizer. Uh, uh, usage or nitrogen fertilizer in particular. Um, so, I mean, this is particularly pertinent, isn't it, in, in, uh, over the next number of years? It looks like you're going to be a busy man with, with the work that you're doing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm reminded of that quote, an overnight success after 20 years of working at it. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, it's, it, it, yeah, I've been working on this for about 20 years, and it seems that, uh, you know, the, the time is coming when, as we approach a policy regime or an environment where nitrogen use and uh, you know fertilizer use in general is 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 expected to be reduced, then the use of these kinds of uh, I call them technologies, which is what they are, uh, multi-species mixtures becomes even more compelling in that kind of a, a policy environment. Very good. Well, look, I think that gives us a good uh, tease up your presentation nicely um, and. Uh, you're going to be talking to us today about the, the science behind the, the, the multi-species uh, grassland swards um, in, in Johnstown Castle and uh, at other sites across Ireland. Uh, so if you could share your screen with us, John, and uh, while you're doing that, just want to remind everybody, if you do have a question for John, please use the Q&A tab at the bottom of your screen uh, where you're welcome to put, put forward any questions or comments uh, we'd be delighted to discuss those at the end of the presentation. So, John, we'll hand over to you. Thanks very much, Mark. And uh, again, thanks to uh, Signpost Series for the opportunity to present our work and um, to, uh, and I'd, I'd like to acknowledge the, the many collaborators that we've had over the years who I've named here, but also many others in international projects and uh, good collaborators and good friends. Um, what I'd like to focus on is multi-species mixtures, which have really been talked about a lot. And there's um, a very quiet revolution going on in parts of the countryside where many farmers are trying these out. And um, you know, the, the, it seems like the gateway drug to multi-species mixtures is to just convert one paddock and see how they get on. And many farmers are starting to convert a lot more of their paddocks given the experience with them. So before I go into the detailed science, you know, the, the principle behind multi-species mixtures is that uh, a group of species together will uh, be able to 
utilize available resources better than a monoculture. Uh, this has been hotly contested for quite a long time, but the principle and the theory is that they can better utilize the available light, um, utilize the soil nutrients, uh, utilize a deeper soil profile of nutrients and water, and of course then also have synergies amongst the species that result in, for example, nitrogen transfer from legumes to grasses, uh, reductions in pests and reductions in diseases, and all of these different processes can act to uh, improve performance of mixtures in theory. And the surprising thing is that there's been relatively little research, I'm not saying none, but relatively little research to dig through a lot of these theories and uh, processes. And I suppose in the last 10 to 15 years, that's, that's come to the fore much more. And that's what I'd like to focus on for the next 25 minutes or so. So what I'd like to talk about is, um, you know, what are the effects of multi-species mixtures on yield and weeds as just uh, two prominent examples. Although, as I mentioned a moment ago, you know, mixtures are expected to affect an awful lot of other soil processes as well, but I'll, I'll focus on yield and weeds this morning. How do mixture yields respond to lower rates of nitrogen fertilizer, which is becoming really topical at the moment? And can mixtures mitigate drought effects? And also briefly hint at some of the, the next steps and research that we're aiming to undertake. So I want to start with, with my, own, uh, my own start in, in, in research after my PhD, which was looking at uh, multi-species mixtures, but in semi-natural grasslands. So we took plants like uh, de, uh, 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 ranunculus, um, buttercup, uh, grasses, uh, dandelions, you know, these kind of plants that you'd find in, in species, in, sorry, in species-rich grasslands or in semi-natural grasslands, and manipulated the diversity of these and grew them in plots and tracked their uh, yields over time. And what we saw was that um, as species richness increased, we saw this uh, rapidly increasing uh, response to richness that plateau plateaued over time. Of course, the other way of interpreting this is that as ex species extinctions occur, you see this accelerating decline in ecosystem function, especially as you get closer to uh, monocultures. And we asked well, at the time, uh, I remember asking the question, well, we see this very steep response uh, in the initial phases of species richness, and could this apply to intensively managed grasslands? And I remember having, you know, several fairly vigorous debates with people at the time who, um, you know, there was, it wasn't really clear, could you always be able to find a monoculture that would be the best adapted to the existing conditions, or would multi-species mixtures um, of some sort or, or greater diversity be a better approach to uh, avail of the available resources. And it was genuinely unclear what the answer would be. So I was delighted when we got the opportunity to test this idea in uh, the agrodiversity experiment, which was conducted as part of a cost action uh, back in the uh, early 2000s. And um, this was conducted across 31 agronomic sites across Europe in an international experiment where the same experiment was repeated at each site. We had four agronomic species and we sowed these in monocultures, equal proportions of the four species in a four species mixture, uh, a dominant plant, uh, one dominant of the four in a 70, 10, 10, 10 mixture, and then two co-dominant species in a four species mixture as well. So overall, we had 11 different types of mixtures. We had the four monocultures and we repeated this at two densities. So we had a design at 31 sites, across 17 countries in Europe, including uh, and Canada, and giving us 930 plots in total. And a key part of the design is that we didn't just assemble any random four species, that we were intentionally trying to maximize the functional traits or the variation amongst agro agronomic species. So we had uh, grasses and legumes, but we had a fast establishing grass um, in lowland perennial, perennial ryegrass, which was most commonly used at the sites, uh, and a fast establishing red clover and a slower establishing uh, coxfoot. It wasn't always coxfoot, but that was a, a prominent species in our, in our set and white clover. So we had this combination of fast and slow establishing, which was intentional to try and reduce weeds and also a grass and legume contrast to try and maximize transfer of nitrogen from the legumes to the grass. So as I said, it was genuinely unclear what we would find. And uh, I think a lot of the agronomists in our group expected that, you know, the perennial ryegrass would consistently beat the, the mixture performance. 
So to have a look at the results of, of these uh, experiments across Europe, um, here we have each of the 31 sites plotted uh, on the x-axis, and we've got the yields in tons per hectare on the y-axis. And just to take one example here, we can see the 11 different types of mixtures, which varied in their evenness, whether it was from the four equiproportional, uh, four equiproportional combinations of the four species or dominance by one species, 70, 10, 10. So all 11 of those mixtures are represented by these circles. The uh, performance of the best monoculture over the three years of the experiment is indicated by this short, uh, short line. And then the performance of the average monoculture is indicated by this square. So what we can see across all of the 31 sites uh, in general is a prominence of the mixtures performing better than the average monoculture. And this happened almost always. But also in a lot of the cases uh, and the majority of the cases, the mixtures are performing better than the best monoculture over the three years. And where this happened is indicated by these uh, symbols at the top of the, of the, um, the chart here. And the interesting thing is that uh, we see this very big gradient in yield across all of the sites, you know, going from approximately 20, you know, 18, 19, 20 um, tons per hectare, right down to three or four tons per hectare at some of the less fertile and, and organic sites, although it wasn't because they're organic that they were less fertile, it was more the soil conditions in places like, uh, you know, if you go to Sardinia, for example, where it's a very short growing season and a lot of drought um, there. But regardless of this, the background level of fertility, we see an equal likelihood of the monocultures being able to beat the best, the best uh, sorry, the mixtures being able to beat the best monoculture. So it's just as likely to happen in the more fertile sites where there was a fertilizer application of up to about 180 kgs of nitrogen per year, down to some of these sites here, which applied no nitrogen. So just to summarize that, we found that in 98% of these 930 plots, they were the mixture performance was better than the average monoculture performance. And in 65% of the plots, the mixture performance was better than the best monoculture performance. And on average, the mixtures were about 20% better than the best monoculture. So of course, we, we, we never measure our yields by, by total yield alone. It's also important to know what is the uh, prevalence of weeds. And one of the features of multi-species mixtures, a lot of farmers query with us is, uh, how do we control weeds if we can't use a post-emergent spray? And this chart gives a really good insight where over the three years of the experiment, we can chart the weed invasion as the, the red bar here. So the percentage of the yield that comprises weeds is indicated by the red bar in the monocultures here in year one and in the mixtures here in year one. So we can compare the monocultures versus the mixtures in year one, year two, and year three. And what we see over the three years is this really strong uh, increase in weeds from about you know, 15% up to 34% of the whole biomass comprises weeds by the third year. Whereas in the mixtures, the weed proportion is consistently staying at around 4%. So once you get good establishment, the mixtures, and this is well known, have an incredible ability to suppress weeds and keep them out. Okay. So mo moving on, one of the, one of the uh, features of that experiment was that within each site, the same nitrogen uh, level was applied to all plots. So it clearly says that applying the same amount, amount of nutrients, you get, um, you get better performance from mixtures. So another question is, well, what happens if we start lowering the rate of nitrogen fertilizer? And there's quite you know, relatively few examples of this around. So one excellent one came from uh, one of our Swiss colleagues who implemented the same type of design where they're manipulating the proportions of legumes and mixtures, which is represented at this axis, where here you've got examples of 0% legume in the sward, which is grass only, and then 100% legume in the sward, which is uh, legume only. And they're plotting yields. And just to talk you through it, here what's happening is we've got three levels of nitrogen fertilizer at 50, 150, and 450 kgs. And as the legume proportion increases, so it's zero here, so this is the grass only sward at 50 kgs of nitrogen, and we increase the legume proportion to 10%, 20, we can see this really rapid response of the sward yield to the legume proportion. 
progressing along here to about 50% legumes, you see this really strong hump-shaped dome indicating these really strong synergisms between the grasses and legumes. And this is repeated to a slightly lesser extent at the 150 kgs and to a much lesser extent at the 450 kgs uh, nitrogen. And we can compare this to the grass-only plots which were grown at 450 kgs of nitrogen. And this is really, really impressive at this site, where we see that by manipulating the legume proportion and applying only 50 kgs of nitrogen, we can beat a grass monoculture yield or a grass only yield, which has had 450 kgs of nitrogen applied. So again, indicating how we can not just get, we, we can get more from less by manipulating the legume proportion in this ward. Um, another feature of this, of course, is that the higher nitrogen fertilizer reduced the legume percentage in the swords. So the nit nitrogen disappeared from the swords much, much faster at 450 kgs compared to the 50 kgs, which is, again, well known, but something to keep in mind as we try and manage clover persistence. Uh, moving on to another uh, topic, for a long, long time, we've been looking at research with mixtures under favorable conditions. And a really important question is, can mixture diversity protect against extreme weather events or against disturbances? And for the last number of years, we've been looking at various experiments testing, can mixtures help ensure us against drought? So this is a, an overhead drone shot of one of our experimental uh, plots where you can see this lovely checkerboard effect. And you can see the clear, there's a number of high nitrogen uh, monoculture, uh, sorry, high nitrogen perennial ryegrass monoculture plots in here, which you can clearly see sticking out with this really bright green. Um, and this same plot uh, later in the year, you know, we've, we've been, this was intended for drought uh, experiments. You can see these drought shelters along the side here. I remember showing this to a, a group of visiting farmers and advisors. And um, I think they got quite a laugh out of the idea that we would be looking at drought effects on grassland in Ireland. But of course, later that year, this is what the same site looked at. And any of us trying to feed cattle during this weren't laughing at all where we see, you know, this is more akin to what you might see in Nairobi rather than Johnstown Castle at Wexford. And again, here we had to irrigate our, our so-called rain-fed plots to try and maintain this drought comparison during this experiment. So drought is, you know, an extreme weather event that is projected to become much more likely in the years ahead and will challenge uh, not just Irish but global agriculture. So we're looking at you know, how can drought affect grass growth? So grass growth through the season can be represented something like this. And drought, uh, if it occurs at a time point like this, can affect grass growth very quickly, or it may be less slow and gradually decline like this in response to drought. And then once the drought ceases and soil moisture levels recover, you know, there are alternative ways in which the grassland can respond, which again, we don't know an awful lot about, or there could be a lasting legacy effect where uh, the drought, there's a memory of drought kept in the system that means that subsequent performance is lower than expected. And to try and capture these different options, we're taking harvests, um, we're imposing experimental droughts and taking harvests at this point here. So we can tell the difference between a rapid effect of drought or a slow effect of drought in this resistance period. At the end of the drought, we can look at the consequences and how severe they've become. And then after the drought and the recovery period, we can look at how does the grassland plots recover? So we conducted this experiment in, uh, as part of the EU animal change experiment, again, using mixtures of different contrasting functional groups. Again, a deep rooting chicory, deep rooting red clover, uh, shallow rooting grass, perennial ryegrass, and uh, shallow rooting white clover. And the idea being that the deep rooting uh, species would give additional uh, benefits under the drought. Uh, we had plots with one, two and four species communities, again, manipulating their, um, the relative abundance of the species. We imposed a drought for nine weeks using these experimental drought shelters that allow the air through. So they're not cooking the vegetation, they're allowing an airflow and the air temperature only increases very, very slightly, but they are preventing rain and uh, simulating a drought in this way. And again, applying 150 at the Irish site and 200 kgs of nitrogen at the Swiss site. So over the six harvests, uh, and this is one example, uh, the rain-fed control uh, is represented by the black bars and the drought is implemented at this point. And four weeks into the drought, we see only a very modest impact. But by the end of an eight week drought period, we see this very severe drought impact with 70% reduction in yields. 
And once the drought ceases at this point, we see almost immediate recovery. Well, we do see immediate recovery in the next harvest and even a little bit of a bounce back here in the following harvest. So this indicates that the grasslands are extremely resilient. Once the soil moisture restored, uh, was restored, the grassland growth bounced back very, very quickly indeed. What we want to do next is look at, well, what's this, what, what is the effect of species diversity and species richness on this resistance period, the severity of the drought in total, and the recovery period? And we're focusing on, on aggregating these three harvests and looking at what was the effect of species richness on these three harvests. So um, under the rain-fed control, which didn't have drought, of course, so under the rain-fed control, what we find is that as we increase species richness from uh, one to two to four species, and yield is represented here, we see that the average yield increases significantly. So species richness gives us higher yields during, at the end of, and in the recovery period of drought. And in addition, we see this reduction in variability across the harvests. So we see increased performance, reduced variation, and of course, this is classic yield stability. So species richness promotes yield stability. We found this at the Wexford site and the Zurich site. Uh, and it was even more pronounced in the Swiss site here. And then the question is, do we see the same kind of response under drought? And the answer is yes. So here we see again an increase in yield with species richness and a reduction in the variation as species richness increases, which is classic yield stability, as I said. Again, you see this obvious effect of drought, which is to be expected. But the ability of richness to mitigate the effects of drought is very clear, and the same on the Swiss site. So looking at the Swiss site in more detail, um, the effect of the drought is represented by this, this distance here. So it's about 0.75 of a ton um, as we average across these two years and the uh, three harvests. I mean, it's more severe in the specific, in, in the single yield at the end of the drought, but across the three harvests, it's uh, averaged as 0.75 of a ton. And the negative effect due to drought is smaller than the positive effect due to species richness. So what this means is that the four species mixtures under drought uh, were sufficiently, had sufficiently greater yield that they actually yielded more than the average monocultures under rain-fed conditions under the control. So this really proves that um, mixtures are a practical farm scale mitigation action for drought. Um, having looked at four species mixtures under uh, like this, I mean, the next clear question for us well, is to look at six species mixtures and increase that richness level even more and see, have we exhausted that capacity for plant diversity in intensively managed grasslands to mitigate the effects of drought? So in this new experiment, we uh, were looking at this kind of a design, which is represented by 100% uh, grass uh, is represented uh, here. 100% uh, legume is represented here and 100% herb is represented here. So we're manipulating grasses, legumes and herbs with these monocultures. We also have 50% uh, grass legume here, 50% grass herb here and 50% legume herb here. So we're looking at how the different functional groups interact and then six species combinations of these communities in this interior space with this point here being a third grass, a third legume and a third herb composed of two grass species, two legume species, and two herb species. So, um, so we have a, a manipulation of the functional group diversity and looking at how does that respond to, uh, how does yield respond to this change in diversity? And also, so here we have the grass, the legume, the herb monocultures, and in the very middle then the combination of all three functional groups. And we also repeat this under uh, a drought treatment. So looking at the, the plots that you can see this clear checkerboard effect here throughout the plots um, and the results look something like this. So just to talk through this for a moment, uh, this taking this example here, it's the two year average of seven harvests per year over two years. So, so the average of 14 harvests looking at uh, tons of tons per hectare of dry matter uh, forage. And this is a heat map showing that the great the deeper the green color here, the greater the yield. So this point here corresponds to uh, just over 12 tons of dry matter production over here. And this is the rain fed control. And again, you can see this variation where the herb uh, production is the lowest and you get um, 
greater and more or less equal performance of the grass, the average of the two grass monocultures, the average of the two legume monocultures. And then when we combine them, we see this clear response to mixing the species indicated by these concentric circles and this kind of peak in performance as you go towards the center. So looking at the, so again, that peak in performance is actually at the very center of it is here and it's, it's almost 12 tons per hectare. Whereas we can see here that the performance of the grasses is about you know, 10.5 to 11, say average of 10.75 tons per hectare. So again, a very, very clear diversity effect, including a contribution from the herbs. In contrast, um, here we've got the same results for the uh, drought treatment. So again, it's the grass, legume and herb endpoints, and then mixing them all together in the center here. And again, these concentric rings and the heat map shows you get much greater yields in this point here where the six species are being mixed compared to the monocultures at the ends, which are all quite much more severely affected by the drought than the mixtures. And again, that point, that midpoint of the drought um, uh, where you have equal proportions of all six species is just over 10.5 tons. So, so just to summarize that, we see a very clear effect of mixture diversity on yields when there is no drought, but even more strongly when there is drought, showing it again as a strong, uh, as a strong mitigating uh, practical farm scale mitigation action uh, to combat drought. We also compared this to a high nitrogen uh, response with 300 kgs of nitrogen. So these were, sorry, I should have said, these are all at 150 kgs of nitrogen per hectare per year. And we compared that to a lowly and perennial monoculture, which had 300 kgs of nitrogen per hectare. And that performance was more or less the same in both at just under 10.5 uh, or around 10.5 tons per hectare. So we can see that the, uh, the mixture performance here is considerably greater than the, than the lowly and perennial monoculture with twice the uh, fertilizer applied. And even the mixture performance under drought is marginally greater than the, than the 300 kgs of nitrogen lowly and perennial under the control conditions. Again, showing the extent to which the mixtures can be an effective mitigation action. So then we've also been looking at emissions, which I'll talk about in a minute. Uh, we've all showed that, again, weed invasion is lower due to diversity, and we've been looking at uh, nitrogen content. We'll be reporting on that in the forthcoming work by Guillaume Grange, whose work this is. Just to summarize this work and pull out some of those, those really important points. Um, so this is taking specific points from that work, showing that the perennial ryegrass monoculture at 150 kgs of nitrogen is yielding here. So this is in 2018, the year of the drought. The uh, perennial ryegrass monoculture with double the nitrogen is here. And here's the six species mixture with the 150 kgs of nitrogen. Similarly, under the drought, uh, the drought side, uh, the lowland perennial at high nitrogen is relatively unaffected, but uh, you can see uh, a suppression of the, due to the drought of yields of this perennial ryegrass monoculture with 150 kgs of nitrogen. But still here, you can see that the six species mixture with 150 kgs of nitrogen is still equivalent or, uh, to the um, high nitrogen perennial ryegrass at either drought or the rain fed conditions. Um, another, uh, another piece of work on this looked at the greenhouse gas emissions and nitrous oxide emissions. So this work was done by Searsha Cummins um, and uh, looking at what are the nitrous oxide emissions per tonne of dry matter yield. Again, we see this clear reduction in nitrous oxide emissions intensity as we go from the perennial ryegrass with the high nitrogen to the perennial ryegrass with the lower nitrogen. And again, the six species mixture with the lower nitrogen uh, being the lowest of all. So again, showing that the mixtures are not only improving yields, but they're also reducing the, the uh, nitrous oxide emissions uh, on, a, on an emissions intensity basis, but also on an absolute basis. Okay, so to conclude, um, I think this work shows that diversity in these swards matters and um, the strategic selection of species, because we've been very strategic and intentional in what species we include, what functional traits we're manipulating. These are really important for the design of multi-species mixtures. These are, these are not random gatherings of species. They're quite intentional for agronomic purposes. We've shown that the mixtures benefit yields, weed resistance, um, protein self-sufficiency, which I didn't show here, but is also shown, 
nitrogen efficiency and nitrogen use efficiency, yield stability under drought, and nitrous oxide emissions intensity. Um, also, legume, import, legume percentage uh, is, is really crucial to achieve a lot of these mixture benefits. I mean, it is the engine for a lot of the processes because of its because of the in incorporation of symbiotically fixed nitrogen to replace and displace um, uh, fertilizer nitrogen or inorganic nitrogen. And really, I think this work shows that as we, uh, as I said in the introduction, face into a policy environment where nitrogen is, is going to be more and more contentious and more and more controlled, um, the lower the nitrogen regime that you're facing, the more compelling seems to be the case for uh, adopting multi-species mixtures. So just a, a signal uh, or a link, look to the future, um, where we're going next with this work, we're looking at grazing trials, um, which we may talk about another day. And I know my good colleagues in UCD will be talking about this in one of the forthcoming signpost series. Uh, we're really interested in soil fertility effects and what is the legacy effect perhaps in a rotation of the grassland lay phase and its subsequent effects on things like uh, soil health, soil fertility, soil microbiome diversity, and also soil carbon sequestration. And uh, again, we're also interested in what is the role of multi-species mixtures as a forage input to uh, anaerobic co-digestion with slurry for production of, of biomethane. So that's it from me. Um, you know, if, if anybody wants to follow up on some of these things, um, uh, I blog about this, this work quite a bit at this, at this link here, if people want to follow up on some of the research, the research links and the research papers. And uh, with that, uh, thank you very much for your attention. Thank you, John. Uh, thanks for that excellent presentation and uh, some really useful graphics there to describe that, how the, the different uh, herbs interact with each other. Um, John, you, you talked a, lo a lot of, about the trials that are ongoing there in Johnstown Castle, um, the, 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 the patchwork uh, of, of uh, plots that you have there. But how, how are these uh, multi-species uh, swords performing under grazing conditions with, with bovines and, and sheep as well? Or have we yeah. got uh, evidence on that? So I think uh, we're we're really starting out on on the research assessment, uh, the research investigation of how do multi-species mixtures perform under livestock conditions, or maybe more importantly, how do livestock perform under multi-species conditions? And uh, we've implemented this at Johnstown. Um, UCD have got several; they're, they're currently undergoing uh, several investigations. They've completed a study on sheep, um, which is showing that uh, multi-species mixtures have really positive effects on live weight gain, uh, parasite control, and you know it, 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 there was a really clear effect, positive effect of multi-species mixtures on livestock performance in, in the sheep system. Uh, we've been implementing it at Johnstown Castle over the last year. Uh, last year was our first full year with a, a trial with dairy uh, livestock in the dairy system comparing a high nitrogen um, ryegrass and clover system with a lower nitrogen multi-species system. And it's very early to say, and you really want to conduct these systems trials for several years, but so far they're neck and neck in terms of milk quantity and quality. So, um, you know, we're, we're quite impressed um, so far. Um, again, colleagues in, um, abroad have clearly shown livestock benefits, um, you know, where multi-species mixtures can perform even better than the, the, the grass clover. It's not just the monoculture perennial ryegrass at high nitrogen, but they can perform better than the grass clover at no, low nitrogen. So it seems to be an added kick from increasing the diversity beyond just grass clover, um, especially at lower nitrogen conditions. So there is, there is definitely, what, what's clear from all of the research is that there is no drop, no significant drop off in nutritional quality or, and certainly the amount of forage that's available. John, at the, uh, the outset, I said that this may seem too good to be true. I mean, are there any downsides to uh, multi-species grassland swords in an Irish context? Yeah, I think, um, I think, you know, the downsides are probably, there is a question about persistence. Um, uh, we talk about this a lot and, um, you know, can we get that clover and the herbs to persist? Um, in some of the earlier work where people were putting in, I mean, many years ago, decades ago, where people were putting in multi-species mixtures, which might have had 20 to 40 species, and it was clear after a year or two, there was only 10 or 12 of them persisting. And after three or four years, there's much fewer. 
So the idea that you pile on 30 or 40 species into a system like this is, again, it's not that strategic selection that we're aiming for here. Um, on the other, so sorry, coming back to the point about persistence, but even with the these lower lower diversity systems, which you know are six to ten to nine species, um, a lot, some of those species will disappear. But what we're what we're keen to keep is the is the proportions, you know, that you're not dropping below twenty percent for the herbs, and the clover is even more important. And there's technologies there that you can, or techniques that you can adapt. Like there's over sowing that can work. And I think we need work on this to, to say, you know, if we do notice that there's a drop off in persistence, how can we rectify it without a full reseed? Um, so there's options there. Um, I mean, Jane Humphreys and colleagues have been working on this for years with spreading clover in, um, in, 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 in the fertilizer spreader, for example, and re reinstating it. Yeah. I suppose the other question is, is there a problem with persistence? I mean, some, there's, there's a lot of concern about it. And, but some farmers seem to have no problem with them persisting and others do. So I think there's a, there is a, an element of uncertainty there, but I think it can be managed and we can also learn how to get better at managing it. Yes. Okay, John, um, there's a, a, a literally an avalanche of questions coming through here. Absolutely. Get, get, better get moving. <laughs> so, but Pat, just before we go to the questions, can I just bring people's attention to the fact that uh, next week uh, is Water Quality Week and uh, that there are a number of uh, important uh, events happening during the week there, a lot of uh, information available on the Chagas uh, channel, social media and, and website. So do, do keep an eye out for those different uh, topics that are going to be dealt with each week next, uh, next week, starting the 22nd of March. And uh, we're going to have Noel Meehan, who is the manager of the Chagas uh, ASAP program. Uh, he's going to be joining us on the webinar next week uh, to finish out the week. So, um, Pat, better get over to you quickly with, with get through some of these. We have 50 questions coming through already. So I can yep. say now we're not going to have time to get through them all, but uh, perhaps we can cluster some of them. Yeah. OK. Uh, I suppose the first question there is, are there different establishment techniques required when sowing multi-species swords, or is it pretty standard for what you would be using for normal grassland? It's 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 pretty standard. Um, I think if you, it's pretty standard is the is the is the straight question is the straight answer. I think if you have a field with a known if you have a field with a known weed problem, you've got to deal with that weed problem before you sow the multi species because you can't apply a post emergence spray because it'll affect the the herbs and the clover more more likely. Um, so you have to deal with any weed, existing weed problem before you sow them. If you get good establishment, they are brilliant at keeping weeds out. And again, this is a point I often make, you know, a lot of the, the, the so-called monocultures that we sow, you know, once you go into a lot of those monocultures after three or four years, they ain't monocultures anymore. Whereas with the multi-species, you're controlling the, the, the species that are present in the sward. A couple of specific questions on that uh, uh, in relation to docks, I suppose, in particular, mm. uh, and the, the management of docks, or, or do docks become a problem? To the same extent as they would in a monoculture, um, they, they certainly aren't a greater problem. I mean, if you've got an existing dock problem, they're not going to be a greater problem in the multi-species. Oh, yeah, sorry. You, well, you can't apply post-emergence spray. Like we have, we have a field or two with dock problems in in our in our place, and you know they're there. We've and they're they're not spreading. You know, um, it's not a problem. No, but I think if you've got a problem, you have to deal with it before you resow. Okay, uh, a question in relation to the the output. You've talked about the output levels, but in terms of the the feed quality, uh, dry matter digestibility of the combined uh, uh, forage that's being produced. Yeah. So um, the we, we're looking at that, and in general, there's no significant difference. Um, it can vary from it can vary across studies. Sometimes it's slightly less. Sometimes it's slightly more. You know, compared compared to perennial ryegrass, so in general, there's no. I think I think on average, there's no big, there's no significant difference between the quality of what you produce from the multi-species mixes and perennial ryegrass. You know, it's not it's not deficient. Um, uh, even some studies have shown that where the quality was slightly lower, the intake by animals is higher, and actually resulted in a net increase in animal performance because they 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 found it tastier. You know, they they wanted to eat more of it. So it's, uh, I, I think it's very clear that there is no crash in a system if you introduce multi-species wards because of issues with quality. 
Um, one of the uh, one of the related questions is its uh, its quality of silage, which of course is very important. Mm. Um, and recent work by Thomas Maloney and Grange under the Smartgrass project showed that again it's very important to get the that because the because the water content is slightly higher in the in the herbs, you need to wilt it really well to get that quality silage. So it needs it needs very good wilting, and then it'll make great silage. In terms of persistence when it's used, when it's cut for silage, is, is that a potential issue? So is it as, as versatile as it was for moving between silage and, and grazing? Uh, we think so. Um, I, th I think, uh, I'd say we're probably at version, version one or two in multi-species design here, in that I think the next step is start is start thinking about varieties and species that may be better tailored for grazed systems versus silage systems. Um, but in general, we're, we've been we've been using them for livestock grazing, and then of course the excess the excess forage is going into silage, and it's been working fine, and they're persisting for the moment. But we're only two two years in. Yeah, a question there in relation to I suppose a huge amount of work going into grassland management and sward heights and and covers etc. Do the same rules uh, apply or are we likely to have to change the rules in terms of getting the management right? Yeah, great question. And I think that's, again, uh, our colleagues in UCD. And uh, I just realised I forgot to mention my good colleague, Brendan Horan in, in Curtains, who's put in multi-species as well, which would be a great learning opportunity for, for these. Um, I think what, what seems to be emerging from people who are working with the with grey systems for many years, you know, far farmers who have implemented them, is that a slightly longer rotation system, uh, maybe aiming for five or six centimeters post grazing height rather than four um, is a better approach. Uh, using using plate meter because the species are that bit bulkier, you can get you can get deceptively higher uh, yields from the plate plate meter. And all of the farmers who use this talk about having to kind of they they do a mental rejigging of the plate meter reading for the multi species. So there does need to be a recalibration of of some sort. Again, like most systems, um, probably we will need to improve that measurement and tailor it for multi-species because a lot of those systems have been built for perennial ryegrass monoculture. So it's, that's not surprising. John, can I ask a question in relation to, I mean, the amount of nitrogen that's been fixed by these the rhizobia in the soil? I mean, are there any concerns there that we are kind of bulking or, or, or driving the amount of nitrogen in, in the soil uh, and potentially can there be leakages uh, as a result of that? I mean, I, I know there's a few questions on that coming through, but mm -hmm. it's a, I suppose it's a general question that people would have about legumes in general. Yeah. So I think when you, if you've got an excess of legumes uh, and there has been work on this, you, you can have nitrate leaching, that's for sure. Um, one of the, I mean, again, it's one of the design features of our mixtures is that the idea is that the mixing of the grass and the legume and the herb, that the grasses are just brilliant at mopping up that spare nitrogen. So once the once the the legume content is before below forty percent, for example, um, so usually it's about in our in our systems we're aiming for about thirty three percent in a six species mix or in, a, in when you've got grasses, legumes, and herbs, we're aiming for about a third of of that to be legumes, and the idea is that the grasses and the herbs are there mopping up that spare nitrogen before it gets into the groundwater or before it goes up as nitrous oxide. Okay. And, and if you get very high levels of clover, you will get greater risk of nitrate leaching, that's for sure. But our, you know, these systems are, the, the way that their benefit is that they are using that nitrogen efficiently. So we're really trying to avoid that. Well, there's a symbiosis there. I suppose you're, you're cultivating. Question coming through here about the commercial availability of these uh, mixes. Are, are they available or can they be got? Yeah, yeah. Um, I know that I don't want to start naming seed companies, but most of your main seed companies in Ireland, they have them available for sure. Very good. Pat? Yeah, a, a, a couple of questions, uh, I suppose, about suitability. Um, in terms of, of wetter uh, areas, how suitable or how do they compare with, with your uh, perennial ryegrass monoculture or grass clover even? Yeah, fine. They'll, they'll, you'd expect them to be better because um, they'll, you'd, you'd expect some of those other species to be better, better suited to conditions than just having a monoculture. I mean, that's, that's the principle behind it. 
And I suppose another question in terms of the, the baseline soil fertility, are you seeing any uh, difference in, in performance? Does it need a higher level of soil fertility or is it, uh, I suppose, uh, able to take a lower level or is it pretty much the same as well? So in terms not quite, of I'm not quite sure I understand. Sorry. In terms of, of I suppose, uh, uh, P and K levels and, and uh, uh, pH, is it as, t uh, as tolerant as, as a general grassland uh, sward or does it, does it need a higher level of soil fertility to, to thrive or is it potentially able to work at lower levels? Uh, uh, it'll it'll be the I mean you need you need to get all of those correct as with any grassland uh, production you need to get your your soil pH your soil P and your soil K is right and you know the the soil P is important for the clover growth um, but it doesn't require any major change from current approaches um, you would expect because yeah I, I'll leave it at that you, you need to get your soil conditions right for all grassland growth. Okay, uh, I suppose a, a good few questions in relation to uh, output and milk output, etc. Uh, and I suppose two two themes coming in there in particular. One is in relation to early season growth, uh, where I suppose it's probably our most valuable grass. How productive is it at that point of the year? And I suppose the other question then is in terms of, of milk constituents and, and, and total milk output. Well, we, I, I suppose we may not, may not have huge amount of research on it, but we have a number of places where it is being used, like in Johnstown, and uh, there's some experiences at least coming from there. Yeah, and I mean, there, it's not like there hasn't been any research done on it, and there's been plenty of farmers using multi-species. I mean, and multi-species are, are, are dominant in, let's say, Switzerland and many parts of the continent, um, where they would, now they may have slightly lower nitrogen levels than what we've got here in, in their general practice, but, but not a whole pile uh, in places. And you know this is their this is their mixture of choice, this is their this is their grassland of choice, and they wouldn't be choosing them unless they were able to give them the milk quantity and quality that they that they want. We are able to, like I said, we've got multi-species over the last year, and it's very very early to be making those comparisons for a system, but they're neck and neck in terms of milk quantity and milk quality with a lower nitrogen regime for the last year. Uh, I know Brendan Horn in, in Curtains is very pleased with their performance to date. And the UCD system is now two, two years underway. And I'm sure Helen and Tommy may be talking about that when they speak in a few weeks' time, but they're early experience with it. Uh, again, there's other examples I mentioned, like Luke DeLabby's work is, is showing that um, they had a 75 kg nitrogen input system. But again, the multi-species produced uh, higher amounts of, of milk there and, you know, perfectly adequate quality. John, what about uh, weed control? Uh, we've a uh, question here uh, coming yeah. from an advisor about uh, saying that ragwort can be a, a major issue on multi-species swords. Have you have you experience of, of uh, handling that or, or how, how is that best managed? I, I haven't had experience uh, of it as a problem in multi-species swords in particular. I mean, where ragwort occurs, it's probably a problem there anyway. And it's just that you can't, you don't have that option for a post-emergent spray, I presume is, is, is the issue. Usually, and I, there's actually been research on, on, on control of weeds by multi-species. They're, they're better at suppressing weeds, but I guess it's not perfect. Um, and like, there's nothing, there's nothing stopping the option of having a spot spray approach if there's a particular problem. Uh, we've done that. We had, a, we had one field where there was a problem with thistles and we just spot sprayed them and that was the end of the problem. Uh, a question in, in, uh, in relation to uh, ground cover uh, and multi-species, is, is it an issue um, in terms of open ground or, or is it a, a problem? Does it lead to poaching or anything? No issue there. No, no, no. Uh, another if anything, if anything the idea is that it, it utilizes that soil and canopy space even better. That, that's, that's one of its benefits. Okay, and is there any work in terms of the, the, the soil microbiome or soil uh, biodiversity uh, after, after a period in multi-species versus a monoculture? Uh, we are, we're starting that work um, and it's, it's too early to say. Okay, uh, another issue in terms of if farmers decide to, to move into this, is there any issue with uh, cows moving from a diet, from a, a field with, with uh, um, mixed uh, species rich 
uh, to or uh, to multi-species to to grass, uh, maybe moving back and forward. I suppose the question is, can you move partially in without any issue in terms of digestion, etc.? Yeah. Um, well, usually, you know, in a well-designed multi-species mix where the where the clover content is, you know, around that thirty percent, there there should be no issue with bloat. Uh, you know, you, you usually expect bloat when you'd have a much higher uh, clover content. So that's not an issue. In terms of, I don't know if anybody remembers their first pint of Guinness, you know, it's a bit of an acquired taste. And I think for the animals, one of our experiences in Johnstown was it is a bit of an acquired taste for the animals. But once they get used to it, they're, you know, they're kind of roaring to get into the paddock. So they have no problem with it. If you keep flicking them back from, from you know, pure grass to the multi-species, I don't know what they, I don't know which they start preferring. Um, so it might be better to keep them consistently on one or the other, but there is no problem. I mean, they will eat, they will eat it. A question there, does the reduction in, in nitrous oxide, is that purely from the reduction in fertilizer use or are there other uh, impacts on greenhouse gases as well? The, that is, so we're, we're, we're not counting the reduction, we're not counting the Haber-Bosch process in the background. It's purely what was measured in the field, if that's okay. partly answering the question. And it is, um, it's not just from the, it's not just from the nitrogen level because you see a difference between the functional groups. So it's, it, it's actually the type of mixture at the same nitrogen level, the type of mixture affects the, affects the uh, nitrous oxide emissions and more so the nitrous oxide emissions intensity because you got such big changes. If you think about it, even if the, even if the nitrous oxide was the same across that gradient of mixtures that I was talking about at 150 kgs of nitrogen, but because you've got such a big difference in the yields, then the nitrous oxide emissions intensity is varying through the yield alone. Okay, we've got an interesting one, John, about the you know the fact that you you're not including the the actual upstream uh, nitrous oxide uh, outputs. Yeah, so it, the the savings are potentially much higher. Absolutely. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, because I, I was um, I was chairing uh, the legume network uh, conference there a few weeks ago, and uh, they had Bob Reese uh, from uh, SRUC speaking, and he was saying that there there can be a, a saving of a half a ton per hectare per year of CO two uh, from uh, legume rotations, and uh, so I mean that, that, that they're probably taking in those those upstream type of benefits. But I mean that 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 it'd be interesting to see the figures on that. To, you know, if if you were to do that full life cycle analysis on the, the yeah. Top. Well, we, we we know that that is an extremely energy intensive process. So that you know the, the effect of fertilizer will multiply by by that upstream effect very quickly. Uh, is there any uh, issue, positive or negative, in terms of animal health as a result of? Uh, grazing multi-species. Yeah, there is an issue. They seem to be healthier. Okay. <laughs> uh, sorry, I don't want to be smart. Uh, you know, that's oh, what... Um, I asked the question. Yeah, that's what Tommy Boland's work is showing, that um, the anthelmintic properties of the, of in particular, the, the chicory and the plantain, it seems, are, are resulting in fewer parasites in their lambs, increasing lamb live weight gain, so they're healthier. Okay, and in terms of, of uh, getting establishment, is it kind of a similar speed from uh, uh, sowing to, to uh, grazing? There isn't a, a longer downtime? No. A question about- uh, Sorry, just to respond to that. Uh, I think you do your, you do your normal, the pull yeah. test, you know, you'd, you'd uh, just check that the animals won't pull the, 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 the plants out of the ground. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's the, normal, the normal approach. A question about perceptions. Do you think yeah. now people get used to looking across a farmer's land and seeing this nice even, uh, no weeds, and, and that's how they judge it? And that's how the farmer considers himself being judged. Yeah. This, this looks different. This looks yeah. a little bit uh, messier, if, if you want to, to use that word. Yeah, yeah. That's going to be an issue with people. When we, when, I mean, before COVID hit, I, I would say we were uh, in, we were in, we were inundated with requests from farmer groups, co-ops, uh, and others to visit these and have a look at them. And, and every whole group that visits says, "Wow, you know, they just there is a huge cultural shift required 
to look at this field of what looks like weeds. And, you know, uh, I think we've got much bigger cultural shifts coming towards us in terms of climate change challenges, drought, nitrogen regimes, uh, how to make our agriculture more sustainable. And I think this will be get, getting used to the look of multi-species mixtures will be a minor shift compared to some of those. That's how I look at it. And when we talk to farmers about it and explain it, they, they see what's going on and understand it. So I think there's a strong, there's a strong advisory element as well here. So uh, John, just on that, I mean, what do you think needs to happen to, to support that advisory effort and that cultural shift that's needed? Uh, I suppose, look, a lot of this, I suppose a lot of the impetus for this will be dictated by, by policy decisions in the, in the forthcoming future. And we know that with acclimatise, for example, there's a very clear fix on, on nitrous oxide emissions and the role of fertiliser application in those. Um, there is, I mean, I think we'd, we'd be a bit more comfortable, even though we know in practice there's a lot of success stories about the implementation of multi-species forwards. I'm sure there's a few negative stories out there as well, but it would be reassuring to assemble and have that research that's ongoing in multiple sites at the moment concluded. Um, I'm pretty sure the answer will be positive and we're seeing that the start of that, but it would be nice to have a lot more of these grazing trials implemented and underway to give reassurance and I suppose demonstration, practical demonstration that these work. And I'm sure there's many farmers around the country could say they could already provide practical demonstration. And we probably at that point do need to um, start considering the extent to which our advisory service is, is, is delivering that message or not. John, you might just talk about a few of the trials that, particularly I suppose grazing trials that are going on around the country uh, are, and examples, just to, yeah. to so, you know, um, again, again, those farmer groups that we that we have coming in, you know, there's there, there's never been a group that one or two of the farmers aren't already trying it. You know, again, uh, you know, that, that that gateway drug is just when you're reseeding, throw the seed into the into one of the paddocks. And uh, there's an awful lot of people experimenting with it, which is great. Um, that experimentation might be better if 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 it's accompanied by better advice, you know, because I'm sure some of the some of the disaster stories that might be out there are probably caused by not doing it the right way. Um, come back to your question. Yeah, there's examples like, there's some of the EIPs are doing this. There's a one in, uh, led by Ag Research in Northern Ireland, looking at multi-species mixtures. The folk in the Inishon Peninsula EIP are looking at multi-species mixtures. There is uh, the Bride Project in, in uh, Fermoy is implementing multi-species mixtures. They're not experiments per se, but they are practical implementation and, and demonstration. In terms of the experiments, UCD Lions has grazing experiments going on. They've had um, the, the, the work with the lamb livestock work completed. Uh, we've got work in, in Chagask in Johnstown Castle. There's work starting up in Grange. Um, there is work ongoing at Curtains in Moorpark with Brendan. So, you know, um, and I'm sure there's a few that I'm missing. Um, uh, you've, you've had the grass clover work going on at Clannacilty for several years, again highlighting the importance of clover. Uh, Phil Creighton's work with sheep in Athen Rye, if I remember correctly, um, also looking at grass clover combinations. So you know, there's we are we are building up a bank of knowledge about the importance of legume-based grassland, uh, which is which is the important element here. Okay, John, um, we're going to have to wrap it up there. We're hard to believe it. It's, it's half past 10 now. Thank you so much for uh, answering so many of those questions. You, you were, it was like a, a boxing round there with all, all the questions coming. <laughs> it's like ma mastermind. <laughs> <laughs> well, we could do another hour. Right past or not, but anyway. To keep going with the, with the amount of questions we've got in, and, it, and, and I suppose we will be returning to the, to the topic in a few weeks' time. So it's... It, it, uh, if you could save your questions for, for, for them. But uh, yeah, I think it's a, it's a watch this space, I think. Uh, and uh, I suppose the message that I'm getting from you is, listen, if you feel like uh, dabbling, don't be afraid to do it. Uh, go for it and, and see how it works. And it'll add, all add to the, the pool of knowledge and all help. Absolutely, absolutely. So just before we let you go, we just want to remind you that the uh, Chagas uh, Signpost Series podcast is now available. Uh, it's on, available on Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts. So if you want to catch up on uh, John's uh, presentation uh, today, or indeed any of the presentations since the start of the series, 
they're now available, all available on the, uh, those uh, various uh, podcast platforms. So look, I just want to say thank you again, John. Really enjoyed your presentation. Uh, Pat, thank you for, for helping with the questions today. Huge amount of questions. Uh, and I think that that volume of questions really endorses the, the work that you're doing, John, and uh, the, the, the hunger that's out there for you know, these types of solutions. So, so well done on that. Finally, I just want to thank our production team, in particular, Andy Boland, Catherine Keena, uh, Pat Murphy, and Yvonne Maher. And uh, so all from all the team, uh, take care, stay safe, and enjoy the weekend. Thank you. Bye-bye.